This is One Heat Minute. Drop of a hat, these guys will rock and roll. What's your name? Wayne Grove. Look like gangbangers working the local 7-Eleven. Robbery homicides take you. Give me all you got! Listen. Give me all you got! I do what I do best. I take scores. You do what you do best. I'm trying to stop guys like me. A podcast dedicated to all 170 minutes of Michael Mann's LA crime opus Heat, one minute at a time. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to One Heat Minute. I'm your host, Blake Howard, and joining me uh, today is a man who uh, about, I think, nearly five years ago, four years ago was the last time we saw each other. We both came equal second um, to one of the guests who have been on this show, Mr. Lee Zachariah, in a film geek trivia competition. Both of us were devastated um, because from all accounts, Melbourne Film Twitter and Film Tweeple um, uh, always talked about how Lee kicked everyone's ass and uh, Simon and I, um, uh, who I'm about to talk to, uh, felt robbed because we both had really shitty, obvious losing answers and we only lost by a point. I'm not bitter about it still, as you can tell by this introduction, but um, my my co-host who's sitting there silently, um, uh, politely while I get through this introduction, is the editor of Student Edge. He's a film and pop culture critic um, for RTR FM and ABC Radio, so RTR is in the west of Australia. He's a really talented dude and he's way too busy uh, running an entire website for the entire student population of Australia to write about pop culture as much as he should because he's great, but thank you so much Mr. Simon Morado for joining me on One Heat Minute. Oh, dude, what an intro. Thank you so much. And, and I was biting my tongue because I just, I can't stand to hear good things said about Lee Zachariah. <laughs> like, I can't, I, four or five years later, whatever it's been, I can't accept it. I can't accept that loss. And I'm, I didn't remember that we came equal second. I love that. I love that. Detail. We came equal second. I can't remember what you choked on, but there was a, a our, our gracious host, again, another One Heat Minute alumnus was Luke Buckmaster and he asked a question they were playing a theme so it was like name name the theme to this movie I know it I know what I choked on and, I know what I choked uh, on it was Lawrence of Arabia. You choked on Lawrence of Arabia. I choked on The Terminator, right? So <laughs> so you're sitting there, and for the first 60 seconds, no one knows. Oh, it's actually the Terminator 2 theme, which is even more blatant. 60 seconds, you have no idea what it is. It could be one of 100 movie themes, and then it just goes, ka Dun-dun-dun-dun-dun. And I was like, oh, my God. I just didn't wait long enough to answer. Anyway, I'm not bitter about it at all. Mate, thank you so much for being a part of the show. You've been on my list um, to get to. And as we're heating up now, we've eclipsed halfway. It's all downhill from here. Thank you so much for being a part of the show. No, no, look, it's my absolute pleasure. And uh, I was kind of glad to be asked at the halfway mark. I'll take that as a, like, because the closer you get to halfway, the closer you get to the key scene of the movie Heat. And the only scene I remembered, uh, because it's been 20 years since I last watched the movie. And I tell you what, as I was watching the film for the second time in my life, but the first time as an adult, I was looking at the clock and I was like, we're getting to it. We're getting to the, the scene, the coffee scene, right? This is my minute. And no, it's just a couple of minutes just, before. Ju- just a couple of minutes try. And look, it is a, uh, I can't say precisely who, but the people in the minute, the people who surround, because it's actually from minute 89 to 95. Right now, the folks in that minute are shaping up to be a murderer's row of one heat minute. Some of the episodes are already recorded. 
I'm flabbergasted by the guests that are joining and haven't recorded yet. So look, take it as an honor. But look, every minute of this film, there is there is something good. And I think in the last couple of episodes, I just recorded one with a former mentor of mine and a teacher um, who did my honors thesis with me, Hamish Ford. And he said, my test, you know, as a, especially as a, he's a lecturer at the University of Newcastle um, in New South Wales, and he goes, my test is every minute for a really great film has do something something you know as a director i'm i'm like challenging i'm chiding directors in my mind do something visually interesting is it the script is it a performance is it a shot is it something and i i don't think i've come to a minute in heat yet in the entire journey where something is boring it is just thrilling every moment and in fact, sometimes these other tangential minutes you end up diving into longer than the conversation minute because I think the conversation is like the pièce de résistance. It's like the it's, it sort of says it all. You just don't want to say anything. You're like, look, as discussed in that <laughs> in the performances, they kind of do it all. So look, let's jump into this minute um, for for context for folks who are watching uh, along or playing along at home. The it is the theatrical cut of Heat on the Blu-ray, which also was on the DVD from Warner Brothers. Very recently, Michael Mann brought out the 4K Definitive Director's Edition from Fox, and they named it that because there was also a Fox version of, I think, Last of the Mohicans, which they called the Definitive Director's Edition. I don't know why, but the Mohicans one is a real different cut than the theatrical. Um, this one, we're at 1 hour 25 minutes um, to 1 hour 26 minutes. It is exactly that on the dial. We are seeing Vincent standing in what he calls this dead tech postmodern bullshit home of Justine's ex-husband. He's just been told that she's going out and this last moment he is about he's thinking about it. He's thinking do I be the guy who's domestic here? Am I the guy that's ready to be domestic and try and salvage this relationship and what we love to see is no, he can't help himself. He cannot help himself. He must stay on the hunt. He is on the trail of Neil. Neil knows he's there, but we're going to get onto that chase, the showdown. Here it comes. Simon and I are going to come and talk back about it in just a moment. We're going to watch it with you, and then we're going to discuss. Here we go. Can you even believe that in 1995 on 35 millimeter film that is mounted clearly to police helicopters that they even got as much of the city as they got in some of those shots just now? Like I just I, every time I watch this minute and the whole sequence in this helicopter, I'm like, it's it's so telling that he immediately jumped off and was like one of those first guys that went to digital because it's just it's yeah. unbelievable. I think that's a really good point. And especially when you look at 
you know, Collateral and Miami Vice and obviously his later films, those digital movies, he clearly, he's a night director. You know, he's a guy who loves his city. He loves his city at night. And I think he loves those that kind of constellation of lights in the skyscrapers. And I, I love also that there's such an L.A. moment in the apartment with that kind of, I don't know the exact name of it, but that kind of glass tile, you know, that's all throughout <laughs> yes. the house, right? Yes. There's that kind of, there's that sort of lime green tile and then it immediately cuts to the side of a skyscraper and you've got that, that beautiful kind of, you know, reflection of the windows and the lights. And yeah, that, that, that mirror, literal mirror, I guess, is so visually appealing for what is effectively a guy who's just scouting the city. And, and only, only Michael Mann can kind of pull it off to that degree. And I appreciated it, again, because all I've seen for the last 20 years are the digital man <laughs> films, right? Yes. So it was nice to go back to this and go, wow, look, look at how good this looks. This, it, it does. And it's like, um, I think Dante Spinotti said in the 20th Anniversary Academy Q&A, he talked about um, overexposing the film. Like for these night shots, like overexposing stuff, lighting stuff in really strange ways. I think Dante Spinotti even talked about hanging out of a helicopter with like a just a, a floodlight to kind of light other things happening in the other helicopters that are floating around. It's just insanity. It's it's absolutely it's wonderful. And again, it's 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 just for a moment that it's not it's definitely not unimportant. But no. this is basically, you know, Vincent Hanna, Al Pacino, he's, he's, he's saying, I'm going to find this guy, right? I'm going to find him. He doesn't need to be in the helicopter in that moment. No. You know, he can wait for the call anywhere, right? He can, <laughs> he can be on the ground. He can be at the station, whatever. But this is, you know, Michael Mann going, no, I want to see the night. I want to see the city. And, and there's a power play here as well because you've now got, you know, Hanna's in this helicopter. He's now had to go above Macaulay because, you know, the last time he was sort of in the in the sort of line of sight where he was sort of in the middle of this ground. So now he's got to literally get up into the sky to get on top of him. It's just such a power play and a power play by man as well. I love that. I hadn't even thought about it. I just keep finding... So this is where you really find the artistry in a film is where <laughs> every scene, like every scene plays into another scene just effortlessly and it's just not it's not obvious. But I love that like... To outdo, he knows that he's being watched, and he knows he must be being watched. And to to get over him even more, <laughs> what's what's the thing that outs outs a you know a, a, the top of a sort of a a tower at a at a at a port? It's to get into a freaking helicopter that flies higher than the tallest buildings in the land, just to go and find this guy. I'm gonna find him. I'm gonna find him in a helicopter, and you're gonna fly me right to him so that I can flip the scales on him. He knows about me. I know about him. All right, well, let's just, let's see where this goes. Let's go back before we get into the city sure. moment. I love at the very beginning of this minute, I love two things. I love, I love an angry knockdown of a tap. Like, oh, like yeah. because we've all been there, relationships, frustrations, you know, something happening in the house, you're at your folks house, something's happening and you're, you know, you've been tasked with washing the dishes or uh, like if you, if if you're like me, um, my brother, my brother, when I was a younger younger lad, I was in high school as a dish pig was my uh, trade, um, which is a dishwasher for those folks who don't know the parlance of dish pig, and um, and he would pay me to wash his kitchen, 
like occasionally. And because he paid me, I think he just made the kitchen even more disgusting than it could possibly have been. <laughs> so like after you're cleaning up and you're like finally finished, slamming down that tap has like the satisfaction of slamming. But I just love you start the minute. It's in a couple of seconds. Simon and I are just watching it as you guys are, as we're talking. And he sort of gets frustrated. He knocks the tap down. He's made a decision there. And I love this moment where the camera has been very... The camera's been very passive, passive in yeah. both in the preceding minute too. It's locked off. It's beautiful, like, beautifully staged, but the camera's not giving us anything. It's not embodying any of the characters. It's just trying to create really great spaces for these people to act in. But I love in this moment, it's from the sixth second of this minute, you'll see Vincent, so Pacino's hands sort of spread across. I don't know if there's any imagery or iconography we want to talk about there, but the camera does this slow zoom and it's much the same. It's like, it's not even six seconds before he takes his hands down from this sort of, he's being pulled between two worlds with his arms spread wide and it's not even five seconds and he's looking at his watch and he's made the decision. And I think it's that same, it's almost another echo in Neil for the late in the later in the film when Neil's in that car and he's driving through that, that, underpass and he's driving through that really white lit tower he's got amy brenneman's character Edie sitting next to him and he's deciding do i go kill this wayne gray or do i go and get this flight yeah and it's like five seconds doesn't seem very you know doesn't seem very long for him to agonize over it and then he makes the call and right now that's the call he's just making it he's decided see that's so interesting yeah i love i love how you kind of you identified the two worlds thing which i hadn't really picked up on when i see that scene i my immediate thought of when was the last time Al Pacino could reach across to both sides of his kitchen? <laughs> I was going to say that, but I'm just like, I don't want to. It's not a heightest movie. This is a movie that, you know, some movie. But what's so funny is I think about this a lot with him, right? Because of the stature right. that he creates. But he's around guys like Michael T. Williamson and Ted Levine, who are massive. And then you've got True. like Wes Studi, who's not a small guy either. And they never really play on the height thing. They totally could do the whole stupid, like, make him look as tall as those guys, but they never do. He just feels like he yeah. fits in. But you're right. It's like, I can't reach my kitchen. And I'm sure my wing, like, either side of my kitchen, I'm sure my wingspan's way longer than Pacino's. But, like, yeah, it's really funny. This well, little tiny, tiny kitchen. You can be stretched across both sides of this thing. It's, it's like, again, it all goes down to that design. And a great choice from him, right? I don't know if that was ever a, like, did they design this kitchen so he could have this scene? Probably not. But it's like for him, maybe that's the allegory, right? Exactly. Well, see, I reckon, I reckon that they probably did. This is my thing. So <laughs> I, when, I didn't even put together the fact that he's a bit of a shorty when I made that comment. I meant more like wealth-wise. Like <laughs> oh, this is yeah. a small kitchen. This right. is a tiny kitchen. And you've got this guy who, yes, he is tiny. So that almost accentuates it as well. The fact that he can, he's, he's claustrophobic in this tiny kitchen. No wonder he wants to get out of there. And, and I just, I think back to that earlier scene, one of the most iconic shots of the movie, you know, he comes home and he's got nothing but space around him. Like yes. that's where he's meant to be, man. And then the next shot is him in literally all of LA. And, and I just look at this kitchen and I think, 
you know, he's in this kind of Christ-like pose. I don't know if there's anything there really, but there is. He's, <laughs> yeah, I'm sure there is. Of if, course, if, there is, right? It's like I love that everyone on the show is like, "Oh, look, I'm, it's a bit of a stretch," and you go, "No, it's not. Go, go, tell me, tell me what you've seen in this yeah. scene." Yeah, it's but great. then the camera. Not only is he cramped, the camera moves in, mm. and so yeah. the room halves again. You know, and it's just like you said. It's just it's a couple of a couple of inches forward, and he's out of there. Yes. And it's, and it's that disembodied camera, you know, that re-emphasis of the claustrophobia of what he is. And it's, it's everything closing in on him here because he, he's been made. Like, that's what's so great about this scene. He's been made by Neil, so the world's closing in, you know. And, and Neil's whole world was being closed in on, and now they're flipping, the, you know, they're, they're flipping it over now, the crooks. And at this stage of the game, Vince and Hannah and his team have no idea that they're aware that they exist, which is you know, that lovely that lovely juxtaposition that they're playing in this whole first sort of stanza of the movie. But yeah, I, I just I love the disembodied camera. It's so it's out it's almost out of character for the recent things we've seen. Mm. So when you when you get it and you notice it, it I don't know, it um, it's like it changes your orientation sometimes. It's like it does something to uh uh, the way I describe it is like, you know, sometimes if you go down a really fast elevator and sometimes it like makes your stomach sort of move strange. Like if a camera is really locked off and then it decides to just randomly have this disembodied feeling, you're like, oh, this is, it doesn't feel like any of the scenes that we've just watched, which is so staged and very yeah. particular. But yeah, I love this. I, I, I love these moments because... You know, it's undeniable in this thing. Like, even here, the camera's still moving in. It's even more claustrophobic still. It's only 15 seconds into the minute by the time we get to him looking at his watch. And like you said, there's this beautiful poetry of a... It's, a, it's like a match-cut match cut masterclass in this moment. Mm. As you said, this, I don't know, weird in, inner house glass walls that is everywhere <laughs> in these postmodern looking homes. And- There's walls within walls in this house. Like <laughs> he is just truly trapped. But it, look, it all speaks to, I think, what I, I love about the idea of your podcast and in that, you know, every scene in a movie should be essential, right? Otherwise yes. should be on the cutting room floor. floor. Yes. Um, now, by looking at it minute by minute, you can't guarantee that the entirety of the scene is going to be conveyed. But I think you're finding, obviously, that, minute by minute there is a lot going on yeah. and every moment of the film or every scene of the film should be should be moving at least the characters forward and here you've got a guy he's about to make a choice but he's just in his kitchen and then the camera literally moves forward and i think it brings attention to that moment like <laughs> yes look if you're not picking up on this something is going on here the guy is about to make a choice and so much of this movie is about dick measuring, which is a, a new revelation to me <laughs> that I didn't pick up on when I was eight and watched the film. <laughs> that this guy, he's in a small room. He's, he's not big in stature, as you've noted. The room halves. And then he goes and does this, this power move. You know, he goes and gets the helicopter. He takes over the city. So I, going into this, I, I was going to say to myself, whatever minute I'm going to get, I'm going to say, you know, this is actually a really interesting minute because I want my I want my episode to be special. I want it to be like a, an in-between episode, a pre-coffee episode. But I think there is something to this moment that actually does speak to the whole of, of heat. You you just picked up on something that I hadn't noticed between scenes and it's, it's a revelation that's sort of constantly happening. I say to folks who ask me, you know, do I keep watching the whole film? And I say that, no, I'm, I'm like a revolving 30 minutes. 
So when I'm preparing for this, like I try, I try and watch. Sure. What I've what I've tried to do is for myself, I can't be isolated to the minute. I have to watch the scenes around it because so many wonderful conversations I end up having, including this one, is like you just pointed out to me how much it's like. If you've been power moved, what is your logic? Like, what's the most logical thing for this character if he's so similar to Macaulay? And what's the most logical thing for him as a cop and as a professional? It's to like, well, if the if the if if the if the balance's power have been tipped, I have to do a restorative move, and the restorative move is twofold. He's going to go and confront him and go, "Hey, guess what? We both know each other now. Mm. I know you know me. I know you. You're good, right? Like." I'm going to put it all out on front street, which is what's so wonderful and even, you know, genre flipping about the scene. And you can totally know why Michael Mann, when he heard this story from Charlie Adamson in the seventies in Chicago, why it piqued his interest and why it endured all the way to 1995 and why we're still talking about it in 2018. It's such an amazing, it is a power, like it's the ultimate power move. It's like the cop and the crook, who is you know the cat and mouse chasing the cat and mouse are sitting down to have a cup of coffee together like that's what we're seeing here it's so good but you know what it's not just a restorative move because it's on his terms yes yeah so it's not just about getting back to square one or getting square with macaulay it's it's one-upmanship it's it's a movie of brinkmanship brinksmanship right so he has to you know drop the helicopter he has to interrupt his drive and yes, they're sitting as equals at the coffee shop, but they both know the terms at which they are, have arrived at that point. Yes. And I think that's satisfying for, for Hannah. Yeah, and he loves it. And I think that he's, he's trying to be in command, but he's deeply respectful. And the cool thing is when you've seen the film, even a couple of times, you don't have to see it as like me, like a psychopathic amount of times. <laughs> um, but the cool thing is if you're thinking about it, if you, and, and now as I'm talking about it, if you're thinking about it in the context of those power moves happening or the machinations of those moves, like it's like De Niro's holding all the cards. Mm. He's got the royal flush in that coffee house scene. So Hannah's still trying to put the one over him. He's still trying to catch him. He's still, you know, playing it out. He's thinking he's got, you know, four aces and he's like, here it is. I cannot be beaten in this, right? I cannot be beaten. Or he's like a four kings or whatever. That's just four of a kind. And he's sitting there, but the great thing is that Neil's like, oh, no, I'm going to dump you. Like, as soon as I leave here, I'm about to drive to the airport. I'm going to dump you. Chris is going to dump you. Michael's going to dump you. And you guys are going to have nothing on us. You're not going to know what we've scoped out next. It's over. So, yeah, I, yeah, it's so great. It's so great. And this scene, again, I, I love sometimes it doesn't always work out perfectly, as you said, in, with certain scenes. But in this scene, I, I really like that we get the whole – we get the whole change of heart. We get the whole that the walls are closing in. And then in all this dead tech modern, 21 seconds, I'm just going to keep freeze framing it forward. Bang. 20 seconds. And you can, I just can't believe you can see the outline of a helicopter. Like, look at that frame. You yeah. can see the outline of a helicopter against the windows of these, uh, these high rise buildings. It is just a really stunning piece of footage on, on celluloid. It, it, and I know you've spoken about this before, um, but I'm going to bring it up again because I think, you know, cinematography from that specific example, that it's kind of astounding it didn't get any Academy Award, oh, even God, attention son. or awareness. And I'm, I'm, you know, I'm sure you've, you've spoken about the performances and, and probably the cinematography many times as well. But for the exact example you're citing, <laughs> like what was going on in 95, I actually haven't, since rewatching, I actually haven't looked up 
what was nominated that year. I'm sure you have the... We're going to go right now. I haven't in a while, so we're going to go... Okay, I was going to say, you haven't committed that to memory as well. No, no, there there are times I I really do... um, uh, I really do like my... This is another minor obsession of mine is looking at the... um, because I'm a fan of Jaws as well as, you know, most mm. people are. Um, the, the, the year 1976 was the Oscars after Jaws. And in that year, Steven Spielberg didn't get nominated for Best Director. And it's one of those famous lore things that film geeks talk about. Oh, you know, Jaws. He was never nominated. Jaws one of the greatest films of all time. And it is. You've Richard, seen the footage, right? You've seen the footage of him waiting to get nominated, nominated and he, he doesn't, doesn't get it. He doesn't. So, and everyone talks about that footage. But then you go back and look at the nominees. The nominees for that 1976 Oscars were Milos Forman, Federico Fellini, Stanley Kubrick, Robert Altman, and, oh my God, I'm blanking on the fifth person. It was like Bertolucci or something. It's like five of the best living filmmakers ever. And this 25-year-old plucky kid. <laughs> who made a shark movie. Who made Sydney Lumet, by the way. Sydney Lumet. Oh, Sydney Lumet. Sydney, there you go. Like, yep. Lumet. And this plucky kid who made a, a shark movie is pissed off that he didn't get... He just didn't get it. And I just... If, it's just flabbergasting. Okay, right. Oh you want to know? Can I, I've got the list in front of me. I've as well. got the list too. I just Your saw. I must have jumped oh my to, the, to the nominee that I'm identifying. And I think even you'll agree... Probably shouldn't be there. Oh, my God. Steven Goldblatt nominated for Batman Forever for Best Cinematography. Jesus. Now, I haven't seen Batman Forever in a while. Is it better than Heat? I mean, Dante (laughs) Spinotti in two years shot Heat and LA Confidential. The two best, I would say, two of the best, if not the best looking films shot in LA ever. Um, that is absolutely atrocious. But like, look at—I mean, this is the this is the year of Braveheart for folks who are sort of not sure. But in the year of Best Actors, Nick Cage wins for Leaving Las Vegas. Hopkins is nominated for Richard Nixon. Sean Penn, Dead Man, um, Dead Man uh, Walking, and then The Postman. Il Postino, Il Postino please. Il Postino. As an Italian, I must insist you use it. <laughs> Name. There is absolutely no, and oh my God, Richard Dreyfuss, Mr. Holland's Opus. No one has ever thought of Mr. Holland's Opus after this year. It's never been done. And then like best supporting actors. Oh my God. The best supporting actor, Spacey yeah. wins, which is yeah. I'm fine with. I'm also fine with a James Cromwell Babe nomination. And I'm even fine with Ed Harris. Um, Tim Roth and Rob Roy does not beat Kilmer. He doesn't beat like there's so. Uh, I mean, oh my god, oh my god. Who, so who is lead and who is supporting to you? I mean, is is Pacino lead and, and De Niro supporting? Because no, even that feels lead, a bit. They're both leading. They're, they're both leading. They, okay. If if it would be one of those things, if they were, um, it's like the year of even in uh, I think it was seven. Would we'll, be the seventy three Oscars, but seventy two was the Godfather. I think Pacino was nominated for Best Actor as well as Brando, and Brando won. Because I would yes. say that Michael Corleone is as big a as a bigger performer in the first Godfather as as um, as uh, Brando, but obviously, yeah. well, and fair. Brando, I would say Brando is absolutely supporting. Yes, like, <laughs> yes, like, yeah. It, it's both a fraud in the wrong direction. Yeah, um, but, which is an interesting one. But yeah, I just cannot believe like some of these ones. You're like, yeah, that's good. You know, I'm happy that Susan Sarandon won for best. Uh, you know, for Dead Man Walking, I'm happy with Chris McQuarrie getting his Oscar for Usual Suspects. Um, you know, there's but some 
how Michael Mann doesn't get nominated for Best Director in a year where Tim Robbins is best Dead Man Walking, Mike Figgis for Leaving Las Vegas, which who cares? Michael Radford, it's like it's just a cage performance. Best Picture, what else is here? Sense and Sensibility, just stop, everyone. Just stop. What is going on? See, what? it's funny looking at this list now because, I mean, I've got a soft spot for Apollo 13. I think it's I, a great film. Apollo, but it's, it's... Apollo 13 is a great film. I, I'm, I've got no issues with any of its nominations here, but some of these, like Nixon, it's the worst Oliver Stone movie that's ever been nominated for this many no. awards. Oh, okay, yes. Thank you for that clarification because oh, I'm, no. I'm not a fan of Nixon, but come on. Like, oh, no, it's not, quite, it's, not, it's not quite U-turn. It's not quite U-turn. No. But I kind of came into this a bit nervous because, look, I like Heat. I don't love it. And this recent rewatch kind of affirmed that for me. And there's a lot of great stuff in here. And even looking at this minute, I'm appreciating it more and it's making me want to go through minute by minute and give it that much attention once again. But yes, I, even I agree, looking at this best picture slate, I mean, there were surely five other better films to put here than these five. And I'd be happy if Heat was in there over pretty much all of these except maybe Babe. Yeah, Babe's a great one. But even te- like te- <laughs> technical awards. Technical, absolutely. Te- like, absolutely. I, I, I will get that people might have been a bit conflicted or confused about who the hell is the supporting actor in this movie. Like, I would, if you, if you, if, to have a look at like some of the women here, and no offense to Kathleen Quinlan for Apollo 13, you're not better than Ashley Judd of that year, who could arguably be in the lead or, you know, best actress or best, you know, best supporting actress. In no way, shape, or form does any of the women on this list, even Susan Sarandon, sorry, Susan, um, come close to either Diane Venora or Ashley Judd for me. I think Ashley Judd's like a best performance of her whole career in this movie. So, but yeah, it's so funny when you look back at these. This is why the Oscars are good because they make you angry retrospectively and in the future yeah. <laughs> you get angry. It's, it's a great time capsule of, for rage. Yes. Like yeah. it's just like, wow, 95. What, what, what were they thinking? What were we thinking? And even Val Kilmer so funnily said in the, you know, in the Academy, the same place that Dante Spinotti talked about this gorgeous cinematography that they're talking, said, my favorite part about working on Batman Forever was preparing for heat. Like that was his, <laughs> like his fondest memory of that time was this. And he just finished it. And even editor, um, so Dove Honig was the editor of Batman Forever. He, um, they were working on multiple editorial teams. You'll have a look at the editors. It's like Pascal Buber, Dove Honig. And they had all these teams of people. And he couldn't come over until halfway through the film because he was still working. He was still editing, you know, cutting um, Batman Forever. Two big Warner ones. One, you know, obviously Popcorn and the others here. But mm. crazy, crazy. Well, hey. They had to get that Oscar, and Batman Forever apparently was their uh, was their best route in the year eight. I just can't believe it. And that's that's cinematography branch, right? That's those guys. I mean, cinematography branch, stop, okay? All you guys out there, if you're listening to the show, Dante Spinotti is the greatest. But to be fair, I did see, and I'm no, I'm pretty sure you would have seen it this year, Ant Man and the Wasp. Did you see yes. Ant Man and the Wasp? I Peyton, did. I did absolutely. Peyton Reed directed, Dante Spinotti cinematographer is that true someone's like he can't believe it he's like no way it is true well, it's and just because it, so the marvel films are so like and i really enjoyed ant man and the wasp i'm not i'm not dismissing it at all and, and it was oh no you, you can know, dismiss it beautiful looking it. film oh you hate it but it's just so marvel templatey all yes. those movies are which is kind of a, a bit sad really and now i'm looking at, at, at spinotti's sort of 
God, last decade, ultimately, I mean, he had public enemies in 2009, which I'm not a fan of, and I'm not sure how you feel about it, but really he's like really, it. really not done... Yeah, it's it's really he's really not done anything of significant note. Um, I mean, you know what? Red Dragon is a good looking movie. That's not a popular opinion, but I'll, I'll give him that. No, Red Dragon's like yeah, I, I totally agree. Red Red Dragon looks really good. The yes. con- the the, the it, there's nothing you can say about the look of the movie that doesn't look good. But it's also it's just a tough it's just a tough movie. It's just it mm. it just turns everything up to eleven in a series that is about a serial killer cannibal like you don't need to turn anything up to 11 like it's just mm. it's all there <laughs> you can or actually you do, do it you do it baroque as in the hannibal tv show yes baroque as hell yeah like where it's like all a dream but yeah he and, and even you know he got stuck with looks like brett ratner multiple occasions did x-men the last mm. stand as well which is probably the least visually interesting of the series but there's so many like i mean if you look at his work in early 2000s and late 90s he's got blink Quick and the Dead, Heat, L.A. Confidential, Insider, and he jumps away from Michael Mann for a little bit. He did Hudson Hawk. Oh, my God. <laughs> Hudson Hawk. You can't say that doesn't look great. Um, but, yeah, there's so many here. Where, where I, And I recently saw Ant-Man and the Wasp, and I was just like, that Marvel template, the cookie-cutter template is precisely, you know, even if you're a phenomenal cinematographer, sometimes you can't break out of what the texture that they're trying to set for whatever template they're doing because like and i'm sure he brought his incredible skill in going here is where the camera should and has to be yes and that's we 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 shouldn't discount that there is a real (laughs) skill in being a cinematographer that that sometimes you know you and i and, and most people don't know where the line between director and cinematographer can sometimes fall on matters like that yes but i'm certain that in terms of the tools he could use and the veneer and sheen of the movie, he couldn't bring the Michael Mann <laughs> no. to Ant-Man and the Wasp. And the Ant-Man and the Wasp, let's just be super clear, does not deserve Michael Mann tools. Like, it doesn't. Des- <laughs> it does not deserve to look like this. It doesn't deserve to look like heat. So let's keep going. Let's get into the minute again, just so. The, the other one, there's another shot, just even two seconds before... Um, uh, I'm just going to try and bring it up as we're talking as well. I'm just stunned by um, it's sort of at the helicopters coming across, it's panning across the screen, and you sort of get to about the 27th and 28th second, and the entire reflection of the city is on the building as well at the same time, and it's sort of mm. it's like this boundless mirror effect you were talking about before. It's just like a couple of seconds before you see Vincent inside the helicopter. Like, look at it's- that. It's, it's just almost like the building is see-through. Yes. It, like it, it, or it's got that kind of, uh, it's got that kind of um, Terminator Two style, yes. like you can see through the metal. <laughs> it's got this kind of, and I'm making it sound a bit more ridiculous than it does look, but it is that moment of, of, you know, it's just like free falling through the sky. Yes. It's just, I'm not sure where the building ends and the city begins, which is kind of, it is a, a remarkable shot. And the. Uh, you sort of, I like how you slightly disorientated. You go from this like super claustrophobic space. You're in another claustrophobic space, but you're, you know, you're viewing the entire city. Vincent's having a conversation here. You see these. I mean, it's unbelievable. You can even see the helicopter against these shots. Again, we're just talking about the the glorious cinematography here um, of the LA night with these dark helicopters um, and Vincent and. I, the last second of this frame, 
that takes us into the next minute finally points us to what we're doing. You know, you see this, you know, gorgeous line of streetlights, this seemingly never-ending straight road through one massive section of LA suburbia. And you're like, oh, he's finally, it's a highway. He's finally, he's, he's going to get this guy. He's going to hunt him down. He's going to catch him. And I really wish, like I so envy, I've had a couple of friends during the project, during this project have like never seen Heat before and have watched it for the first time. And I envy them right now. I envy them in this minute that we're watching going, what the hell is going to happen? Because you're like, in there are, there are a lot of movies, you know, this movie plays with archetypes and it sort of does, all its stuff is, it plays with big archetypal characters or tropes and then it's, it's all about the detail and the texture that it gives them to actually make, sort of elevate them. But I love in this, I, I wish I could go back and give myself like the men in black, like, the the thing to just erase my memory and wonder what the hell is going to happen now like what are they going to do like what what what's what is he possibly going to do like what is he doing here yeah exactly right i mean when i was watching it i and i don't want to infringe on the next minute and i won't i promise but (laughs) i was coming from that perspective of like i basically haven't seen this before and he pulls him over and i'm like oh, they have two interactions in this film. I really only remembered the the coffee scene. They must have this chat on the highway or whatever, like there was this other moment and then it, it obviously leads off because yeah, you're not quite sure what he's doing. No. Um, but now going through this minute, you're like, well, it's so obvious. And then seeing this highway, well, I'm looking at it from his perspective. I'm like, that's a, that's a runway. I yes. can land on that. That's fine. You know, you can see the logic kind of kind of coming together and and the wheels turning. But I wanted to ask you because I mean, if anyone's going to know, besides Michael Mann and the team working on it, it'll be you. I'm assuming Pacino's in the helicopter, right? I'm assuming that's filmed not only on location but him in the air. Yeah, 107 locations. Nothing's shot in a studio, and he's in the helicopter. Um, I don't know if he's definitely in the helic in a helicopter at night to get his coverage. Um, I don't know if he was in because I believe the night shoots to get all the shots they wanted because, again, they're doing weird stuff with overexposing it to get the lights. I think that was yep. over multiple nights. It was over multiple nights with Spinotti uh, famously hanging out the side of a helicopter trying to light helicopters with other helicopters with a floodlight. Um, and Michael Mann just going, yeah, this is normal. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, no, it was multiple nights, but I don't think he, I don't think he was needed for – Everything that they do, of he's course, in, he's of in the he's in the great coverage shots, and then just the la- that beautiful landing scene that we see in, in a corresponding minute, um, or sorry, in the following minute, and um, and then when he sort of gets out and does that, I I I really love, um, just not to infringe too much on the next minute as well. I love people casually walking out of helicopters in movies. Like I think it's mm. now one of my favorite tropes, is because. You know, Vincent casually walks out of a helicopter like it's nothing. But, you know, if anyone's ever had the... Like, I, I did it on a holiday. Like, I went on just like a flight for a touristy view, you know, bird's eye view of a place in a helicopter. And it's not something you casually go approach or walk out of. Like, it feels really stressful when you're around a helicopter. So I just love him just like pottering out in a suit like it's just every day. It's 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 It's... It's it's sort of silly and great, but yeah, no. No, you need to. You need to because I know that when I, I've never walked out of a helicopter or to <laughs> a helicopter, when I see a character leaving a helicopter head down, you know, the hand on the head, and they're kind of doing this sort of like squat shuffle away from a helicopter, <laughs> like I disrespect that character. Like I have no – that character lost me at that point. If he had done that, he loses the power play. He loses the power play. You're so right. If he gets out super casual, swagger, no problems, walks over. This is um, what I said. That to so- embarrassing, like, billowing <laughs> pant. 
Like from yes, it's like when you see. Uh, it's my favorite thing when I see like a um, a guy in a business suit riding a motorcycle. And they've like forgotten to wear like a jacket that zips up at the front, and so their yeah. their suit jacket is like billowing and like a huge parachute with them on a motorcycle. It's amazing. It's really funny because Simon said, and this is, I think all of the Vincent Hannah Power moves, like you could, you need to just approach them and bring them into your life. And Simon, you know, being the consummate professional that he is, was asking me, you know, is there anything else I need to do to prepare for the show? I said, my favorite thing is. Any time that you want to end a conversation with your friends between now and then recording the podcast, just say that's wonderful and hang up on them um, because that's the Vince and Hannah power play. He's even playing power moves when he's talking to his crew. It doesn't even have to be in in any other part of what we're watching. He sounds like a really cool guy to be friends with. To be honest with you, just constantly one-upping everyone in his life. <laughs> oh man, it is so good. Well, look, as we're staring down this endless arrow of a runway in and what does it lead to what does it lead to it leads to arguably one of the greatest exchanges in the history of american cinema is what it leads to ladies and gentlemen this has been the 86th minute of one heat minute this has been simon Murado. simon thank you so much again for being part of the show no my absolute pleasure it was so much fun thanks for making me rewatch hate <laughs> it had been, like I said, two decades, and it had to be done. It had to be done. Um, but no, I had, a, I had a great time chatting with you. Look, that this is, if, if anything, more people watching Heat makes me happy and more of us talking about it. And look, I appreciate also Simon saying, look, not everyone is going to be the, the biggest fan, but I think of all of the great movies that anyone is going to hold up or anyone is going to talk about, it's like, and, and I know that you're a Coen Brothers fan as well. Oh, you're, for sure, yeah. You're a Coen Brothers fan. And there are some Coen Brothers movies, you know, uh, I think about like Inside Lewin Davis or something like No Country for Old Men. There's, there's, some, there's certain movies, Fargo, your favorite filmmakers, and we could go, you could go through many of them, but I'll use the Coen Brothers as an example. If someone ever says this movie is a great movie, there's, what I love about learning in this project is if a movie is truly great, it stands up to like, in every minute, there isn't a second wasted. Or in every, just, it doesn't have to be minute by minute as obsessively as we're doing it now. But like, there is not, it doesn't feel like a scene is wasted, a performance is not wasted, nothing is wasted. So Simon, at Simon Murado on Twitter, if you want to follow Simon and check out all of his wonderful stuff that he does with Student Edge. And just, again, the stream of pop culture when he has time to not be running a massive website for the entire nation's students. So check <laughs> check that out. Um, if, you, if you do, and tune in locally to ABC Radio, you can catch him there having a chat. So thank you so much for being a part of the show once again. Thank you, Mr. Garth Franklin, for our website design. Mr. Paul Davies for our rad theme, which we're about to hear like Paul messed around with the theme that you're about to hear this flanged guitar very shortly um, uh, to make our theme so people are going to be slightly weirded out to hear it twice in the same show Um, and as always thank you guys for listening Um, this is the funnest thing that I do Um, and, uh, and I just can't wait until we get up to this to the minutes the centerpiece and we're on the downhill stretch only 80 four more episodes to go <laughs> <laughs> they say the last 84 of the years <laughs> oh god uh, it is scary it is scary guys I've been Blake Howard he's been Simon Murado uh, you can catch us next time on another episode of One Heat Minute around the corner <laughs>